Uh, it is October, believe it or not. I know it hasn't seemed like it's supposed to be fall yet, but it actually is October now. And uh, because this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, um, actually October 31st is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, uh, we have been studying the book of Romans this, this year, but we also want to look at some of the Reformation distinctives um, that what have been called the five solas of the Reformation. Um, but let me back into that just a little bit by saying this. What would you do when the church, which is supposed to be the proclaimer and the guardian of truth, becomes thoroughly corrupt? What would you do when the church begins selling uh, forgiveness of sin and church leadership posts in exchange for money? What would you do when church leaders begin to live in open sexual immorality and extravagant wealth? What would you do when the church pollutes the gospel of salvation by faith with the system of works and rituals? When the church begins teaching unbiblical doctrine as true and embraces man-made tradition and pronouncements by the Pope and unbiblical office as authoritative over the Bible itself. What would you do when on top of that, when the church makes it a capital offense to read the Bible on your own as a layperson or for the clergy to translate it into a language that you can read so that you can read it on your own? What would you do? Well, if you love Jesus and you hate what his bride has become, what you might try to do is bring about a reformation a renewal of true spiritual life and faith in the church. And there were several attempts to do that historically in the church. Um, uh, they were, there was, first of all, a Frenchman named Peter Waldo. Uh, there was the Englishman John, Huss, uh, John Wycliffe and the Bohemian uh, J- uh, John Huss. And all of these guys were eventually condemned as heretics. Uh, Waldo was condemned as a heretic about... 12, about uh, 1,200, about 100 years after he died, uh, he was condemned as a heretic. Um, John Wycliffe was condemned as a heretic while he was still alive, but before the sentence could be carried out, he died. And so the church dug up his body and burned it and then scattered his ashes in the river. Uh, John Huss was called to a trial to examine his views. He was promised safe passage to and from But when he got there, the church told him, we do not have to keep our word to heretics. And they burned him at the stake and threw his ashes in the river. Uh, Their views continued, mostly underground. But large-scale reform did not begin for another century when Martin Luther, he was a Roman Catholic priest, an Augustinian monk, and he uh, posted his 95 theses. Now, these, uh, these are proposals, ideas for reform of the church. And he posted them in Latin on the castle church door in the city of Wittenberg, Germany. Now, he was a professor at the university there on October 31st, 1517. Now, his intention was not to start a reformation. 
but there had been some changes in the days since John Huss, and one of those was the invention of the printing press. And somebody got hold of Luther's theses, translated them into German, and with the aid of the Gutenberg Press, sent them all over Germany, from which they got translated into other languages and sent all over Europe. And within four years, uh, Luther himself was tried and condemned as a heretic, but he was kept safe uh, by a German king, and the Reformation began. And this is the 500th anniversary of that event. And I think it is worth celebrating because what it did was recovered the gospel and the Bible, and with its recovery brought reform and renewal to the church. See, one thing that you need to know about the reformers is that they did not view themselves, and if you read them rightly, they are correct in this understanding of themselves, that they were not innovators. They did not try to say anything new, anything that, that is not in their Bible and that the church historically had not said before. What they saw themselves as and what they really are is excavators. They were digging out and digging up all of the things that uh, had, had gotten laid on top of what the gospel actually is and what the church historically taught. Uh, you know, if, you, uh, if you're a, a fisherman and you have a boat, you know, you know about things like zebra mussels and barnacles that get just encrusted onto stuff. Well, what the reformers were doing was trying to scrape all those barnacles and all those zebra mussels off of the church and get, get back to what the Bible authentically says and what Jesus authentically taught and what the church originally believed and taught and preached. Now, at the core of the Reformation, there were two big issues. One was authority, and the basic questions involving authority were these. Who's in charge of the church, and who determines its beliefs? Is the Pope the ultimate head of the church and the judge of both Scripture uh, and the church in determining what is true? Or is Jesus the head of the church and his word, the Bible, the ultimate authority in determining what and telling the church what is true? Right? There's, uh, the other issue is the gospel itself. And, and here's the basic conflict. Is salvation by works, essentially, by the performance of certain rituals, you gain salvation for yourself, or is salvation by grace through faith in Christ? Uh, and it is nothing that you do, but is something God does for you that you receive as a gift, not something you work for and earn. Those are the basic issues. Authority and the gospel. Who's in charge and who tells us what is true? Does Jesus tell us through his word what is true? Or does the Pope tell us what is true based on the Bible and whatever he thinks? Which is it? Okay. And uh, the Reformers said, no, Jesus is in charge and Jesus tells us what the gospel is and he tells us in his word. And so as our source of authority, we're going to go with the Scripture alone, 
Not the scripture and the Pope, not the scripture and church tradition, not the scripture plus anything. We're going to go with the scriptures. And they came up with these five statements, these five, they were called solas from the, uh, the Latin word for alone. Uh, and in fact, they're posted in our cafe. You can see them. Okay. But the first one is sola scriptura, okay, which means the Bible or the scripture alone is our authority. Okay. So what I want to do uh, is look at each of these over the next few weeks. Uh, I'll be gone in the Congo here in the middle of the month, but Stephen will tag in for one of these, and then I'll do the last one actually in November. But uh, there, are four, there are four critical ideas about the Scripture that I think we need to see in order to understand what the Reformers meant when they said, Scripture alone. Okay? Uh, so if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to, first of all, the Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, uh, verse 16 and 17, um, where Paul is writing. This is the last letter that Paul wrote. Uh, he's writing to Pastor Timothy, a guy he discipled, uh, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Paul is in prison. He's about to have his head chopped off uh, for preaching the gospel, and he's trying to underline to Timothy the things that are most important for him to remember before he goes to be with Jesus. And he says this, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now what what we're underlining here is the fact that the scriptures by themselves are sufficient. That they are sufficient for us. Uh, and Paul uses a couple of important ideas here to, that he's teaching Timothy. Number one is that all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, the word that he uses there is the word theonoustos, which literally means God breathed, or the, as the ESV has it, breathed out by God. Uh, what we mean by that is that God oversees the writing of the Scripture through His Holy Spirit's power in such a way that what, what is written on the page for us is what God wanted written. And God uses the personalities of these men who wrote the Scriptures and their vocabulary, but it is God's Word that results because God is the one who is overseeing and working through them in the process of the writing. Okay? Um, that it is God's Word. And number two, the Scripture is profitable. You need to see that. Scripture is profitable. It is, in other words, useful. It's useful for your Christian life and growth because the Scriptures will reprove and correct us. Those are basically two synonymous words, reprove and correct. Uh, that where you're out of, out, of, uh, out of plumb with the Lord, that the Scriptures will line you back up and get you back square with how the Lord wants you to live. They reprove and they correct, right? How many of y'all have read the Bible and thought to yourself, ooh, that does, that's not a good look. I need to fix that, right? With your spiritual life, right? You understand this. 
part of the job of the scriptures is, is it, gives, it gives the Holy Spirit the ability to speak to us and to reprove and correct us when we're wrong and sinful and teach us uh, on, on the flip side what is right and what is true, right? For teaching us and for training us. So we get information, but we also get shown in the pages of the, of the Word of God what God wants us to do and how He wants us to do it. Amen? Uh, so teaching and training. And number three, it does all these things with a purpose. And what's the purpose there? At the end of the, the verse 17, you see it, that you might be competent, equipped for every good work, meaning that there is not some other book or tradition or experience that you need to have in order to live a godly life in Christ. It's not like, well, um, you know, we've got JV and we've got varsity here, and if you're JV, you're just going to read your Bible. And, you know, that'll get you most of the way, but if you really want to play varsity, well, you need to do this other thing in addition, or you need to read this other book, and that'll give you the secret knowledge that you really need to really, you know, advance to the top level of Christianity. That is not what, the, what Paul says. He says that if you, if you listen to the Bible's correction and you obey what it teaches and trains you to do, that you'll be competent for every good work that God intends for you to do, that you'll be equipped for everything. Uh, you don't need to add or subtract from the Bible in the name of keeping it relevant, by the way. There's a, a kind of a tendency in our modern culture to say, well, you know, that part of the Bible is not really relevant anymore. Or, well, we've decided, this is always a good plan, we've decided that what God's Word says here is out of date and we're going to fix it for Him. Because surely God couldn't have foreseen the moment that we're in culturally and, and know to adapt Himself, so we're going to adapt it for Him. Right? Uh, the problem is not that the Scriptures are ir- irrelevant, but that sometimes the people reading it are irreverent. And they refuse to submit to what God has said. Amen? Um. God intends to work through His Word by His Holy Spirit to bring transformation. And that's it. There isn't another thing that we uh, really need to get ourselves into. The Bible is sufficient. It is sufficient. Um, Basic thing you learn in Navigators, if you ever take 2-7, okay. What you learn is that when you pray, you talk to God. And in the Word, He talks to you. By His Holy Spirit, He uses the Word to talk to you. And so, in addition to knowing that the Scripture is sufficient, we also need to know and we need to believe that the Scripture is clear. And it has clarity. I want you to flip over to Deuteronomy. Okay? You ever want to know what Moses was like to hear preach? Read Deuteronomy. There's five sermons in Deuteronomy. Uh, You can read. Um... Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. This is what he says. He says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us? 
that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Now, Moses is telling us a lot of things in these verses, but what he's telling us mostly is this, that the Scriptures are not some sort of incomprehensible, unobtainable thing. That they're not up in heaven above us or across the ocean away from us. Uh, They are brought down to us in language that we can understand. And that God is speaking clearly in the Scriptures about who He is and about what He requires of us. He tells us clearly about sin and about forgiveness, about heaven and about hell, about what God um, is like and who He is and what kind of faith is needed to be in relationship with Him and many, many other things besides. Amen? We do not need someone from on high to tell us, therefore, what Scripture means. Uh, We can and we should read it for ourselves. We don't need um, someone to say, well, this is what the Scripture says, and therefore this is what it means, because the Scriptures are sufficiently clear about every major point of Christian teaching and doctrine, all on, them, all on their own, if you read them rightly. Now, that doesn't mean that every passage of Scripture is equally understandable or that it is equally understandable to everybody, Right? Uh, because your ability to understand Scripture clearly does grow as you continue to read it, right? You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't think that, well, he said Scripture is clear, so I can just flop it open to anywhere and find out what God wants me to do, right? Uh, you know, the classic joke about that is the guy who f- decides he wants to find out God's will for his life, so he flips his Bible open and it says, he sticks his finger down randomly and says, uh, and Judas went and hanged himself. And he's like, okay, well, that's not great. So he flips it over a few more pages, and it says, go thou and do likewise. It's like, man, this is really getting bad. Flips over another page or two, sticks his finger down, and says, what you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> right? um, that's not what I mean by the Scriptures being clear. What I mean is, is that the major ideas that the Bible teaches are obvious in its pages. And that everything that is necessary for your salvation and mine can be understood by the uneducated if they use the ordinary means of of Bible study. And that even where some major points of Scripture aren't understood perfectly... Quick, somebody want to explain for us... uh, uh, how God's uh, sovereignty and our free will fit together. I mean, you got like two minutes on that. You just want to stand up and expound? All right, I didn't think so. That doesn't mean that, that we can't understand them sufficiently to understand that they are true. We can understand sufficiently, even if we don't understand perfectly, because God's Word is clear in what it says. For anybody who has... Uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, God has made His Word clear. Third thing we need to understand about the Scripture is that it is necessary. It is necessary. Uh, 
Rick uh, Rosetto read these verses earlier, and there's a lot I could turn to here, but Psalm chapter 119, 9 to 11, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it, that is his way, according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Here's the very simple point being made in those verses. That if you want to live a God-honoring life, there's just one thing you need to do. Read your Bible and do what it says. Read your Bible and do what it says. Okay? Lots of times people get very uh, anxious about God's will, right? And they want to know God's will for their life. And by that they mean things like, well, look, you know, should I take this job or that job? Should I buy this car or that car? Should I uh, marry this wife or that wife or this husband or that husband? What should I do with my life? And they want to know what God's will is in specific on these areas that the Scriptures do not answer. And what I tell them over and over is this. Do not worry about God's will for your life. Worry about God's will. And as you are doing God's will, which is revealed in here, then He will make those decisions, the right and left decisions, if you will, very, very clear. If you are obeying God in right and wrong decisions, then right and left decisions become very, very easy to tell what you're supposed to do. But over and over and over and over again in the Scriptures, God actually says, this is God's will for you. Do this, right? We're going to come up on one of those in Romans chapter 12 when we get there. This is God's will for you, right? Uh, You can go through your Bible literally and underline every command that's in there and obey them, right? If you want to know how to live a God-honoring life, do what the Scripture says, right? Um, it's absolutely necessary for a believer's life to, know, to read and to know and to apply God's Word. And that is totally basic, I know, but remember what Jesus said. This is John chapter 14, 23 to 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, loving Jesus equals obeying Jesus. If you disobey Jesus, you do not love Jesus. If you obey Jesus, it's because you love Jesus, right? Um, the two are connected. You want to say, if you want to love Jesus, you've got to obey Him. That's part of it. Now, uh, so the Scriptures are sufficient, they are clear, and they are necessary for your life and for mine. They are also final in their authority over us. So I want to look at Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Uh, toward the back of your Bible. Find Revelation, then you'll find Jude, and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Then you're going to turn, keep turning back, you're going to find Peter. 2nd Peter, 1st Peter. 1st Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. 2nd uh, Peter 
chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Okay. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 21. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you back up a little bit in, con- in the context there, earlier in chapter 1, what Peter is doing is talking about the fact that he was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus' glory revealed. Remember this? This is a great scene. Uh, Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, they see Jesus as He would be as if He were standing before them glorified, and He is. And, and all of a sudden, it says, and I love this little detail in the Gospel account, it says, Peter, not knowing what to say, said, <laughs> right? Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let's get three tents, you know, one for you and Moses and Elijah up here, and one for Moses and one for Elijah, and we'll just stay here and worship. It'll be great, right? And it says, a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, <laughs> right? In other words, shut up, Peter, <laughs> right? Um, and, the, and Peter is recounting some of this experience here in 2 Peter chapter 1. But th- look at what he says. Verse uh, 19. We have something, what? More sure. And what's he say that that is? The prophetic word. Meaning, the Scriptures. Okay. So Peter's had this incredible experience of seeing the glorified Christ as he is living on earth, but he says in contrast to that, the word of God is more sure than my experience as great as it was. So if you're in conflict between your experience and what you think and what God's word says, guess which one wins? It isn't your experience. It's God's Word. It says we have something more sure, the prophetic Word. The writings of the Scripture are more reliable even than Peter's own experience. And because of that, he says, you do well to pay attention to them as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out somewhere where it's dark. I mean forevermore dark. Where there aren't any stars that are out because it's an overcast night and you're out away from town a ways and it's flat dark. Can't see your hand in front of your face. Now if you're out in a place like that and you flip on a flashlight, I mean your eyeballs go to that light, right? Or if you see a candle uh, off somewhere, your eyes are drawn to that light. And he says that in the same way, we ought to have our focus be on the Scriptures like a light shining in a dark place. Because guess what? Beloved, we are living in a dark place. 
We are living in a dark place. The world around us, I don't know if you have noticed, is going to hell on a rocket ship. And they are working at getting there as fast as they can. Engaging in as much rebellion as they possibly can against God and what His Word would say. He says, but you, meaning those of us who are Christians, need to pay attention to God's Word like a lamp in the dark. And allow it to illuminate your life. And he says on top of that, that if you do this, you need to understand that there's a good reason for doing it. Because these guys were not making stuff up as they felt like, right? Sometimes people talk about the inspiration of Scripture in that kind of a way. Like, you know, Paul was out on a hilltop uh, outside Athens or somewhere, you know, and he saw a beautiful sunset and got inspired and pinned it, right? Like, oh, I need to write Romans now, right? Uh, Man, you know, I was feeling great, and so I decided to write down some Scripture today. No, that's not what happened. Peter says it didn't come about from some some guy's uh, bad burrito or uh, viewing a sunset or something like that. It came about as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that word carried along is is an interesting word. Uh, It is used elsewhere in the Scripture in the book of Acts to talk about how the wind powers a sailing ship. Okay? I don't know if you've ever been on a sailboat before, but I have. It's a lot of fun. A lot of work to get anywhere. But it's a lot of fun to ride on one. And, and what you, if the wind doesn't blow, guess what you do, though? You sit there. And you go, boy, the water sure is pretty today, right? But if the wind is blowing, you set your sail correctly, and it blows you along. It powers, and, it, and, and, you, can, and you can get somewhere surprisingly fast, actually, in a sailboat if you've got the wind with you. But if the wind does not blow, you're in what they call the doldrums. Right? And you just sit there. And Peter is saying that the folks who wrote the Scriptures were carried along by the Holy Spirit in the same way that the wind blows a sailboat and provides the power for the action that takes place. And where there is no Holy Spirit blowing through these guys, they didn't have anything to write. And so they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what went on the page is what God empowered them to write. Now, uh, if you've got just a few minutes, I doubt that very many of you are completely shocked by what I've had to say about the Scriptures, right? Uh, but I do think this. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 17, Now that you know these things... Blessed are you if you what? Do them. Now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Or as James said, do not be merely hearers of the word, but also effectual doers. Right? People who do what the Scripture says. So, let me ask some questions here. If we really believe that God's word is sufficient for us, then we do not need to be looking for something else. 
We do not need to be looking for something else. You know, it might be subtle, but sometimes we can tend to believe that some kind of emotional or mystical experience is something better than God actually speaking to us through His Word. And so we'll spend all kinds of energy uh, seeking God's will for our life, hoping to get some kind of special revelation. Uh, We'll go to all kinds of different places, maybe different kinds of churches, hoping to have some sort of experience that's going to totally transform our spirituality. But that's not really how it happens according to the Scripture. It's not that experiences are bad, but they're not necessary. What is necessary is to allow God to speak into our lives through His Word and to submit ourselves to the leading of His Holy Spirit in the obeying of what it says. If God's Word is sufficient, then we need to look to the Scriptures. If we really believe Scripture is clear, we won't seek to find another meaning or a way of escape from what it clearly teaches. This is not a new problem, by the way. Uh, the early 20th century evangelist said, was told, you know, Billy, you are rubbing the fur the wrong way when you tell us these things. And he says, well, then you need to turn the cat around. <laughs> okay. And he's exactly right on that. He's exactly right on that. Many times we want to find some way of of reconfiguring what the Bible clearly says so that we don't have to obey in an area where it's hard. And instead of that, we need to turn the cat around. Amen? So the fur goes the right direction. We need to repent. Uh, Every person, every culture... Every time throughout history, people have had things as they read in the Scriptures and they wish were not there. Our culture, our time, our people are no different. But the fact remains that we all read things we don't want to obey and we need to repent of that and obey anyway because the Scriptures are clear. Amen? In addition to that, if we really believe Scripture is necessary, then we will hunger for it often you actually believe that this is essential to your life, then you'll read it often. Peter says elsewhere, like newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the Word. Now some of you mamas out there have little babies, and what I remember, what little I remember from those those years when our kids were small, is about every two to three hours all night long, the kid wakes up squalling to be fed, right? And Karen would walk like a zombie over to their room and you know, try not to fall asleep while she's nursing the child, right? Uh, because that kid needs to eat regularly, regularly, in order to continue to grow, right? Guess what? This kid needs to eat regularly, in order to continue to grow. And so do you. If we believe Scripture is necessary, then we will take it in regularly. 
Get yourself a plan. Get on version. You know, you're on your phone anyway. You can get on your phone and you can read the Bible. You're sitting in the waiting room at the doctor's office for the next 45 minutes. You got nothing to do. Don't read an out-of-date Time magazine. Read your Bible. Right? It's there. You can get it in any kind of format you want. But if the Scriptures are necessary, you've got to take them in. And lastly, if we really believe the Scripture is final in its authority, then we're going to obey it. Because Jesus is Lord and He has spoken in it. And if we believe the Scriptures are final in their authority, we will submit to what God's Word says. If it conflicts with our culture, our tradition, our family history, our personal desires, whatever it is, we're going to say, the heck with that. I'm going to obey what God's Word says. Amen? All right. God's Word trumps it all. So, let's pray. And let's thank God for His Word, and then let's sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we do not need some high and mighty individual, some other book, some other kind of experience, some secret knowledge that's not available to everybody in order to live a life that is pleasing to You. What we need is the filling of Your Holy Spirit and and for Your Word to speak to us and for us to obey it. And Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. We thank You for the way that You have graciously condescended to speak to us through it. Father, we know You are greater and more powerful and more amazing than any being in the universe. And yet, like a nursing mother with her child, You bring Your speech down to us. That we can understand who You are and that You love us and that You sent Jesus for us and that we have redemption through faith in Him. And that You're coming back for us and that You're making a home for us and that we're going to live with You forever. Father, we thank You for making it simple enough that any of us can understand. And we praise You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.